Our scripture reading this evening is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. Matthew, chapter 18, we'll be reading verses 21 through 35. And we'll be considering this passage as we also consider this evening the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer that God would forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. So Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, that is Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seized him, saying, or seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the de- that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers, until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as your word is read and preached this evening, I ask that you would open our eyes so that we would behold wonderful things from your word. Lord, help us to have a grasp and understanding of the things that we have heard and the things that we will hear this evening. Lord, but also more than just understanding, we ask that you would give us faith, Lord, to receive and to live by your word. Lord, this evening I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our lesson this evening from... The Heidelberg Catechism is Lord's Day 51, so page 895 in your hymnals. Lord's Day 51, so just question 126. Lord's Day 51. What does the fifth petition mean? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors means. Because of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, poor sinners that we are, any of the transgressions we do or the evil that constantly clings to us. Forgive us just as we are fully determined 
as evidence of your grace in us, wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbors. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, again this evening, as we've just read, we will be considering this fifth petition as we are making our way through the Lord's Prayer, this petition to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And again, I want us to remember that this is a prayer given to us by the Lord. It is a prayer that He gives to us knowing that we need to pray it. And in considering last week, Pastor Nick uh, you know, considered and we considered last week the, the fourth petition that God would give us this day our daily bread. And I'm grateful last week that Pastor Nick emphasized in that petition and the Heidelberg Catechism's emphasis on the, the physicality of that, that that is primarily thinking about, talking about, or praying for our physical needs. I'm glad he emphasized that because we recognize in this prayer, again, that this is a prayer that the Lord gives us and that it is a sufficient prayer, that everything isn't lumped together just in one petition, but that we have a petition particularly for the physical needs, the things of this creation. But as we get into this fifth petition and then next week in the sixth petition, we now get into our spiritual needs, that we have true spiritual needs that we need to bring to the Lord. And one of those this evening is the the need of forgiveness. This week we're focusing, we're moving on to that spiritual need that we have to have our sins forgiven by God Himself. So with that in mind, as we remember our, the necessity of praying this, we look at point one this evening, poor sinners that we are. As David models for us in Psalm 51, we continually need to pray for the forgiveness of sins. I don't know why I underlined David there, it's not surprised that David wrote this psalm. But anyways, David is the underlying word there. But as David models for us, as we already prayed this evening, but as we want to consider again in this first point, David here models for us what, you know, he in a sense expands for us what this prayer to forgive us our, our debts looks like. I was going to, as I was preparing this week, I was going to kind of go through theologically what it means, why we need to ask God for forgiveness. But I thought that this prayer, of course, it is you know, so rich, so beautiful, but I thought it was helpful because it is such a personal prayer. It is, it is, in fact, a prayer, right? It's not a theological treatise, but it is David from his heart, you know, pouring out his petition to the Lord. It is his own personal prayer expressing his own desire to be forgiven. And as he does this, it is a instructive for us. And so there are a few points here, a few things that I want to draw from David's prayer, a few reasons why we not just, you know, not, not just that it's good for us to pray the fifth petition, but that we need to pray. We need to ask God for forgiveness. So the first point, so point A, of, I think it goes through H. So point A, the first reason why we need to pray for forgiveness is because all people are born in sin. All people are born in sin. David acknowledges this in verse 5 when he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. So in this statement, this is a theologically rich statement. David recognizes that just by virtue of being born, by virtue of being born in a fallen, sinful world, by being uh, born in Adam, we are all in need of forgiveness. That you could say our deepest, our fundamental need in this life is our need for forgiveness. That we stand before God as fallen and sinful creatures. And even the language that he uses, right? He says, forgive me for my iniquities. Well, in this verse, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And this idea of iniquity, the various words he uses for sin, 
points to different things, but not only is it just, you know, this idea of guilt, this idea that we've done something bad, that we feel bad, that, you know, bad things uh, have occurred because of our sin, but he emphasizes this point of guilt, that there is a legal debt that we have accrued before God, that we are guilty before God, not just that we have wronged him personally, but as our judge that God is, or that we rather, as uh, sinful people are indebted to God, that we are guilty before the judge of the universe, the righteous one. So David acknowledges this very simply, that we are all brought forth in sin and that we fundamentally need forgiveness. But more than that, not, is it just, not only is it that we as just human beings that we need to be forgiven, but he goes on, he adds to this. Point B, Christians experience the ongoing effects of indwelling sin. So it's not just that we, you know, by virtue of our birth, by virtue of the fact that we are born in sin, need forgiveness, but David also recognizes that at, even as Christians, that we always continually need to be praying, to be asking for forgiveness, and that is because we have indwelling sin, that in this life we will never be rid of the problem uh, of sin. In verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. David recognizes the, the nearness of his sin, right? That his transgressions, his sins are ever before him, that he's constantly in this life struggling with sin. Of course, he's dealing with a particular sin, this sin as the, the heading tells us, this you know, uh, sleeping with Bathsheba, and then killing uh, you know, her husband Uriah, having him killed, that that is the sin in particular. But his recognition is that he as a person, as a follower of God, still is a sinful human being. We, as we consider this, we need to be careful that we not fall into complacency, recognizing, yes, I have been forgiven in the past, I'm a forgiven sinner, I've been justified by God, and then kind of moving on, forgetting about the fact that, no, continually, day by day, our sin is ever before us. Again, that there will never be a time in this life that we will move on or move on from the need to ask for forgiveness. Even, you know, the fact that this is part of the Lord's prayer is a recognition of the fact that this is a prayer that we will always need to pray, that we will always need to pray and ask God for forgiveness. More than this, not only is it a recognition that we as Christians continue to sin and continue to need forgiveness, but point C, sin is an offense against our holy God and heavenly Father. In verse 4, David says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Which is you know, somewhat of a strange thing to, to say, thinking about the context of this, right? David has sinned against uh, Bathsheba. He's sinned against Uriah. He's sinned against the nation of Israel as he's done this in secret, as he's uh, you know, as the king of Israel, he's done the, these wicked deeds. He's sinned in many facets, but he says primarily, fundamentally in this prayer, it is against you, speaking to the Lord, it is against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So again, with, with the last point, point B, we can have this you know, carelessness, this complacency, this idea that yes, my sins are forgiven, that's in the past, and yet we can forget about our need for forgiveness, and yet as Christians, our sense of sin, our sense of the heinousness of sin shouldn't be lessened, but it should in fact be heightened. That not only do we sin against God as you know, the king of the universe, as the judge of all things, but we sin against God as our heavenly father. That in this personal context, that we who have been saved, who have been brought into fellowship with God, we have sinned against him time and time again, and that should grieve us. We should acknowledge, even though we certainly 
We see the effects of our sin in others, that we have wronged others in this life, but this acknowledgement that ultimately our sin is a sin against our Heavenly Father. Point D also, not only is it the fact that our sin is a sin against our God and Heavenly Father, it should be grievous to us, but point D also, as we pray for the forgiveness of sins, we recognize that sin is costly to forgive. Sin is costly to forgive. David recognizes this a few times, but in verse 7 he asks, you know, in, the, in this language he says, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The language that David appeals to as he asks for forgiveness is this language of cleansing. And for us, it might be you know, foreign, it might not click what exactly he's talking about. You know, obviously, the idea of cleansing makes sense. We need to be washed of our sins. But the language that David uses throughout this psalm is sacrificial language. It's a particular language tied to the sacrificial system of Israel. As David is asking to be washed, as he's asking to be cleansed, as he's asking for his sins to be blotted out, that's language tied to the sacrificial system. And so as David is praying this prayer, he has this constant reminder. The nation of Israel had this constant reminder as they would go to the temple, as they would see the priests sacrificing and doing what they were called to do day in and day out. There was this constant reminder for the people of Israel that, one, that sin exists, that there is sin in their midst, but also this reminder that sin and the eradication of sin is costly, that sin requires the shedding of blood, that there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. That they would have known that, and this is what David is appealing to. God, would you wash me? Right, This language of being cleansed by water, but also being cleansed by blood. That his sin needs to be atoned for. It needs to be taken away. And of course, as Christians, we, are, uh, we remember, we recognize the costliness of our sin. That we look to Christ and we remember in his sacrifice the costliness. What it costs to remove sin. In Revelation 7, it speaks of you know, the, the saints in heaven, and it describes them uh, by saying that they are those who have had their garments washed by the blood of the Lamb. So, of course, this points to the effectiveness that Jesus' blood cleanses from sins, but also the cost of it, that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain, and through that costly sacrifice, our sins were forgiven, that God doesn't just you know, look over our sins, but God paid for our sins through Christ. So that should compel us not to you know, avoid God, but to go to God, to not want to add to that sacrifice, not want to uh, you know, constantly see Christ crucified or remember that, but to remember that was a one-time sacrifice for our sin, and we want to uh, walk in newness of life. We don't want to continue to add to the sin that Jesus paid for. Not only is sin costly to forgive, but then point E, in addition to this, sin steals our joy. Sin steals our joy. David pleads with the Lord as he has asked for forgiveness. He then asks for things in light of that forgiveness. He asks for kind of these relational things. And one of those things he asks the Lord to do is he says in verse verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Well, the implication there, if David is asking for God to restore his joy, is that David is in a Season is in a state of not having joy. He's joyless right now as he is you know, in his sin, as he's experiencing the effects of his sin. He has lost his joy as a Christian, his joy of salvation. And we want to reflect on the fact that sin always steals our joy. 
We see this just in the, the language that, we, you know, that is often attached to sin. What is sin described like in the Bible? Well, very commonly, sin is described as slavery, that as we participate in sin, we are enslaved to it. It enslaves us, it you know, enforces its will upon us, that it entraps us, that we cannot get out of it. Sin is described as misery, that it is a miserable estate to be in sin, that it doesn't bring joy, but it actually brings despair and misery. As we think about the effects of the fall, we think of sin as futility, that our sin leads to futile ways of living, that it is fruitlessness, that sin doesn't you know, bring about those things that we desire, but it actually brings fruitlessness in our lives. It brings about death in our lives. And in, the, you know, in many places, but in particular, the, the Proverbs, sin is talked about in light of, or in thinking about foolishness, that sin is you know, living against God's ways, that it is foolishness, that it is folly, that it is dangerous to us. It is a stupid way of living. And as we participate in sin, it steals our joy. As we see in our own experience, but also in Scripture, that as we participate in sin, it ultimately and always corrupts us, that it ultimately and always consumes and also, in addition to this, we want to remember sin is deceptive. That sin seems to be, it often you know, presents itself as joyful or something that will lead to our enjoyment. As Eve looked at the tree, right, that it was pleasing for her eyes, that it seemed attractive to her. And, of course, sin always seems attractive to us. It seems to you know, offer and to provide that which we truly long for, that's what, that which will bring us ultimate joy. And yet we want to remember that that is a lie, that sin always steals our joy. Point F. Also, if we're thinking kind of experientially here, point F, sin robs us of the experience of fellowship with God and the church. David pleads to God in verse 11, cast me not away from your presence. Now, we want to affirm in this as we, you know, as we think about you know, asking God for forgiveness as we think about our status before God, that we are Christians, that we have been saved, we have been justified. We want to acknowledge that in no way does this you know, prayer or in our experience, in no way do we ever run the risk of losing our salvation, that our salvation is secure, that we are justified, that we have been given new life, that God will preserve His saints to the end. But while we do have union with Christ and we do have fellowship with God, we often can experience a lack of communion. Right? We have union, but we lack communion as we fall into sin, that we lose that experience of the nearness of God as we participate in sin. Again, it's not talking about you know, losing the presence of God forever, being cast away from Him. We know that that's not the case. And yet, so often, as we deal with sin, as we struggle with sin, as we uh, you know, fall into sin, we lose that experience that God promises to His saints, that experience of assurance that we can know that our sins are forgiven as we dabble with sin as we fall into sin that sense of assurance can dissipate we can question our salvation we can be unsure of it we can lose the peace that God promises to his saints we can feel again we can feel distant we can feel hostile towards God we can lose our experience of God's favor to us we can feel like you know we know that God is our heavenly father but we can feel at times as we are in sin that we do not have that favor, that God is not looking at us as our Father, that sin can cloud that vision, cloud that relationship that we have with God and our perception of that relationship. And we can often lose our experience of the love of God. We, again, we feel cold, we feel distant to God as we are in sin. Not only does it uh, 
rob us of our experience of fellowship with God, but our experience of fellowship with the church. That as we are in sin, as we walk in sin, that we typically tend to, Christians tend to withdraw from the fellowship of the saints. That sin causes us to separate, to be isolated from the body of believers. This is why in Hebrews there's this encouragement or this this exhortation. God calls us to encourage each other day by day, lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so we want to preserve that experience of fellowship with God and the church. And one of the ways we do that, the primary way, is to ask for forgiveness, to come to Him, to be forgiven of our sins, to be renewed in that relationship. Point G. Sin often brings painful discipline. Painful discipline. Again, thinking about the context of this prayer, right? David has committed this heinous sin, and because of this sin, and we see this in the account of David and the the prophet Nathan, as Nathan comes to him, he rebukes David. He calls him out for his sin. And David prays to the Lord, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. This idea that God will often painfully discipline. He will painfully bring us back. He will correct us when we are in sin. David has been severely chastised and the language he speaks of is that his bones have been broken in order that they might be set back into joint. So we come to God, we ask for forgiveness. Well, one, to avoid this, right? We come the easy way. We don't want to be disciplined. We don't want to experience God's fatherly discipline. So we come to Him earnestly. We come to Him eagerly to avoid that, or we come to God asking for forgiveness because we have experienced that. Because God in His grace has fatherly or has disciplined us as a father. He has brought us back. He has corrected us. And so we ask for forgiveness, asking that the bones that He has broken would rejoice. And then lastly, point uh, H, the last reason. There are others in this text. I would invite you to read through this psalm, but the last one that I want to highlight is a lack of repentance is a serious warning for Christians. David says, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And as he prays this, we want to remember, or we want to see here, that David is not in these words. He's not doing something rote. He's not doing something magical. That asking for God's forgiveness is not just something that we do with our words. But David here expresses this is his heart's desire, that he has a truly repentant heart. He has a a truly sorrowful heart. And so we ought to also truly grieve for our sins. We ought to truly desire forgiveness. And when we lack those things, that should be a warning to us that we have become, you know, we've fallen under that, uh, that numbing effect, that, that hardening effect of sin. And so we want to come to God. We want to be restored. We want to have our hearts softened as we come to Him for uh, asking for forgiveness. So again, there are other reasons in the psalm. There's other reasons we could point to, but David gives us very helpful reasons why we need to come to God asking for forgiveness. But in addition to just the motivation, the reason why we ought to come ask, asking for forgiveness, we want to also remember the grounds, the reason why we can actually come to God and know that we can be forgiven. So point two this evening, because of Christ's blood. This prayer not only shows us our need for forgiveness, and this prayer being the fifth petition, but it also points us to the abundant source of that forgiveness, the abundant source of that forgiveness. So again, it's not just that we ought to come, that we are called to come, that we need to come, but in coming we come because we know that there is a true source of forgiveness for us. So point A, 
This petition is based on the promise of Scripture that God forgives sins. So as we pray this prayer, just as we pray any prayer from God's Word, as we pray to God, and in particular as we pray the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, we pray them expectantly. We pray them knowing that these are given by God and that God will answer these prayers. That in particular in this one, that God is promising as He gives us this prayer, as Jesus gives us this fifth petition, that God promises that He will forgive our sins. And yet, as we pray this and we know God will forgive our sins, we want to think about how God does this, how God goes about forgiving our sins. Well, we want to affirm, first of all, that when we ask for forgiveness, God doesn't forgive, a, forgive our sins simply by sweeping our sins under the rug. That God doesn't, for, you know, for, forgiveness doesn't simply mean that God forgets about our sins, that He moves on from our sins, that He doesn't think about them anymore. That's, that's the result that happens, but there's a cost to our sins, as we've already talked about. I think it's helpful that in the Lord's Prayer, that the way that our sins are talked about, it doesn't say forgive us our sins, but it actually says forgive us our debts. I think this is a helpful picture that we are given, that our sins are described as debts. Right, as we think about forgiveness just on a human sphere or a human level, you know, it's easy for someone to say, yes, you are forgiven with their words, but if there's a debt involved, if there's a payment involved, then unless we see the receipt, we can't know for sure that our forgiveness is true. And that's the point of the parable that we read this evening. The parable that Jesus gives us as he talks about forgiveness among the church, he uses this same metaphor, this example of payment, of debt. So we want to think about our sin for a moment as debt. What does it mean that our sin is a debt that needs to be forgiven, that needs to be paid for? We'll see this in two ways in Scripture. The first is the fact that just as creatures, as those created by God, as those created under, uh, you know, with His law in our hearts, as God is our Lord, that we owe God simply by virtue of creation our obedience. That we owe God something. We owe Him our allegiance, our obedience, our conformity to His will. So in that sense, we are indebted to God when we disobey Him. But even more than this, even just the fact that we have failed to obey God, as we sin against God, we also, in a negative sense, we accrue debt in the sense of punishment, that, we, that God owes us something, that, right, that we you know, maybe even heard the phrase, our just deserts, right? that this is justly what we deserve, that we are owed punishment for sin. And so the Bible often talks about sin in this way, as a debt, as a thing that needs to be paid for. This is what we see in 1 Peter. Peter likes to mix his metaphors here, but he says, You are ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So he mixes this kind of you know, financial metaphor with this sacrificial metaphor. But the point is, right, he says, you, Your debt, your sin debt, has been paid for. It's been covered not with silver or gold like a human debt, but it's been covered, it's been paid for, it's been taken care of and wiped away by the precious blood of Christ. So again, as we ask God for forgiveness, we can know truly that we are forgiven, not just that God says, yes, your sins are forgiven just with His words, but something has happened, something has occurred that has removed our sin. Of course, as Peter points us here to the Lamb, it is the cross, it is our looking to the cross that testifies to us objectively that our sins are forgiven. That the cross is spoken of in this and in other passages as a payment, as something that truly took away, that covered, that dealt with 
the debt of our sins. So as we pray this prayer, Lord, forgive us our debts. As we want to know, and we truly want to know, are we forgiven? We can look to the cross. That our prayer is not rooted in the, this continual thing that is happening, but it is rooted in this one-time event. That we look to the one-time event of Christ on the cross, and we can know that God has forgiven our sins. So when we ask for forgiveness, of course, we are reminded of this one-time event, and in this we are reminded of the depths of God's grace. We're reminded of the fact that this forgiveness came at a high cost. That it came at the cost, we know, of the only Son of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son to forgive us our sins. That God's gift of His Son and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was truly sufficient. That it truly wiped away our debt. That our debt has been paid. It is forgiven. We are no longer under condemnation. I want to see here, there's you know, two kind of aspects I want to see as we think about the, you know, what occurred to bring about our forgiveness. First is, as we already mentioned, the costliness of our forgiveness. That our forgiveness, we can know it is certain, we can know that it is sure because it was costly. That it cost, again, it cost the life of Jesus himself. That he paid for it with his precious blood. In that sense, we can know that our sins are sufficiently paid for. But not only is the forgiveness of sins costly, but in another sense, we also want to affirm that the forgiveness of sins is free. That there's a freeness about it. Not in what it costs to cover it, but in the way it is distributed. That it is freely given to God's people. You could say that we are forgiven with no strings attached. That God truly and uh, you know, unanimous or, or, or uh, unilaterally forgives our sins, not from anything we've done, not from our own merit, but God Himself forgives our sins freely. As Psalm 103 says, right, the, the result of our forgiveness is that as far as the East is from the West, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. We can know that for certain, that there's a, a freeness, that the, the slate has been wiped clean, that we are no longer under God's wrath. And this is given to us as a promise in Scripture that you can be assured that your sins are forgiven because of God's Word, because of His promise, because of the objective event of the cross. So we want to hold on to that, the costliness of forgiveness, but also the freeness of forgiveness. And yet, while that is true, while we want to affirm that, we want to recognize what we've been forgiven of and how great of a forgiveness we have, we also see this tension in the prayer in the petition, in point B, there is a relationship between our own forgiveness and our ability to forgive others. The prayer doesn't just say, forgive us our debts, but it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that is challenging language for us, right? That there seems to be this uh, reciprocity, this uh, kind of, you know, this, this balance in the scales that there's this forgiveness that we are asking for, but also this forgiveness that we ourselves need to provide for others. Jesus even adds to the kind of the tension of this issue when he uh, concludes, he gives the Lord's Prayer, at least Matthew's version of it, and then in verse 14 he says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So again, there seems to be this relationship. What do we make of this fact that Jesus says that there's a sense in which if you don't forgive others, your sins won't be forgiven. Well, we want, to, we want that tension to be there. We don't want to explain away the tension, but we do want to scripturally understand what Jesus is saying, what this prayer means. And 
the first thing we do want to affirm as we wrestle with this question is we want to affirm that our forgiveness, the second part of this petition, in no way is meritorious for our own salvation. And that just comes from what we've already talked about, the fact that our salvation or our forgiveness comes through the one act of Jesus Christ. That even as we pray this prayer, we pray it as forgiven, justified people, that we are redeemed, that you know, the fruits of redemption, one of the fruits is repentance. So we want to affirm that we are not doing anything to merit something before God. And so we want to ask, what is that relationship? What is the relationship between our forgiving, our being forgiven and our forgiving others? Well, many ways we can think about this. I think just for the sake of this evening, I think what I want to say is that what it means for us to forgive as we have been forgiven is really to say that it means that we need to grasp as Christians how much we have been forgiven. We need to grasp, again, how costly and how free our salvation is. That, in a sense, if we aren't forgiving, we don't truly understand what grace is. We don't understand the depths, the richness of God's grace to us. And that's what we see in the parable of this unforgiving servant. What was the primary issue that this servant had? Right, as he has this debt, this you know, insurmountable cost, you know, billions of dollars forgiven him, and he has this you know, wage of a few thousand dollars that he's not willing to forgive. What's his problem? Well, fundamentally, his problem is that he does not grasp what has been done for him. He does not grasp the, the sheer magnitude of what has been forgiven him. And so in our own lives, as we you know, don't forgive, as we are hesitant to forgive, what does that say about us? Well, what it says is that in a sense, we have a higher standard for forgiveness than God does. That the forgiveness that we offer to others either is more costly than the forgiveness that God has given to us, or that God's forgiveness is freer than the forgiveness that we ought to give. That we are you know, uh, stingy with our own forgiveness. That when we don't forgive, what we're saying is that the sin that someone else has committed towards me is more heinous. It is more unforgivable than the sins that I have committed before God. And we want to remember David's words, against you and you alone have I sinned. That it is sin before God that is most heinous in his sight. And this prayer, of course, forces us to take stocks again of the depths of God's grace. We need to know the depths of God's grace in order to forgive others. Not just how much God has forgiven us, but also how often God has forgiven us. The, The question that Peter asks that starts this passage, he says, you know, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Is that good enough? And Jesus says, no, you need to give him either 77 times or 70 times seven, depending on, on where you land on that. But the point is, no, you need to be exuberant. You need to be profuse in your forgiveness. The point being, how much more has God forgiven you? How often does God forgive you? You need to be as generous with your forgiveness. And yet, even though this is true, even though we want to affirm God's grace, we want to affirm the depth of our own forgiveness, this is certainly a challenging thing for us. This brings us to point C. This prayer is given to us in part because forgiveness is challenging. This prayer is challenging. Forgiveness is challenging because, as the Lord says in this prayer, as He says you know, it's in different places, there is no conditions that are put on our forgiveness. Jesus doesn't say, you know, up until this point, you need to forgive someone else. It's unqualified. He simply says, you need to forgive your debtors. 
that there is no level of sin, you could say there's no point at which we need to, or that we can run out of forgiveness, that we need to continue over and over forgiving the sins of others. And this is challenging for us to forgive, to truly forgive those who have wronged us. This is where we are tempted to, where I'm tempted to bring up the many caveats we want to bring up, to think of the many questions, which are valid questions, but we want to you know, kind of de- lean in a little bit to the challenge of this as we think about issues like you know, abuse, as we think about issues like protecting the flock, protecting the church, issues like church discipline, issues like you know, setting up proper and healthy boundaries with, boundaries with those who have sinned against us. Those are all valid concerns, and yet we want to affirm the unilateral nature of our forgiveness, that we are called simply to forgive. That yes, it does call for us to use wisdom and as how we approach relationships, how we deal with those who have sinned against us, how we deal with those who have sinned in the church. That is something we need God's help for. We need God's word and we need wisdom for. But again, we don't want to explain away the challenge of this prayer that we are called to grasp the depths of God's grace so much that we are willing to forgive others. And yet, even as we pray this prayer, this prayer is not just a challenge to us, but it is in and of itself a plea It is a plea that God himself would help us to forgive those who have wronged us. In the Heidelberg Catechism, we see two things pointed out here as to how we go about forgiving others. In the second paragraph, forgive us just as we are fully determined as evidence of your grace in us wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbors. The two things that the Catechism emphasizes here is first, our posture, our hearts uh, bent in forgiveness, that we ought to be wholeheartedly willing to forgive our neighbors. So not, you know, obviously forgiveness is hard, forgiveness is challenging. Many of us have in some sense forgiven others, but we still deal with the ongoing, you know, effects of what they have done. We still struggle with, yes, I've forgiven them in the past, but I still think about those things. I still struggle with fully forgiving them. And yet God here in, in the Heidelberg Catechism emphasizes the fact that, you know, certainly it might be hard to forgive. Certainly it might be a work to, uh, a process to forgive over time, but our heart should be bent towards forgiveness. We ought to be determined towards forgiving others. Even if that takes time to play itself out, our desire should be seeking to forgive, to have a heart to forgive others. And the second thing we want to see that the Heidelberg Catechism emphasizes is that this forgiveness is a work of God's grace that are forgiving others. Again, it's not meritorious. It's not something we do ultimately, but it is a work of God's Spirit, a work of God's grace working out in us, that we are even able to forgive others. So not only is it just the fact that our forgiveness, our being forgiven, is the grounds for our ability to forgive others, but our forgiveness and what God has done for us in Christ is the very power that we need to forgive others. That we should always tend towards forgiveness, but it is God himself who is working out, working to make us more and more forgiving, desirous to forgive. This prayer then is not meant to further condemn us to, you know, as we consider our own lack of forgiveness to say, well, you are not forgiven then. It is actually given to encourage us, to pray to God, to help us more and more to forgive our neighbor, to grasp the depths of our own forgiveness. Calvin, in his uh, you know, writing on this in the Institutes, he says this actually is, the second part, is an encouragement. It ought to be an encouragement for Christians. That, in a sense, you know, the way he kind of puts it is, if you want to know that you are truly forgiven, 
He says then, you know, essentially be liberal with your forgiveness. The more that you are free with your forgiveness, that points you back to see, look what God has done for me. Do you want to know that you are truly forgiven? Then he simply says, you know, continue forgiving others. Be generous with that. And you can know, amongst other things, that you yourself have been truly forgiven. So that should be our heart, that we desire to more and more forgive others, even though it's challenging, even though we recognize and need God's help for it. We want to do so knowing that in doing so, we see our own salvation. We see our own forgiveness that God has poured out on us. So finally this evening, I want to think about just briefly what this might look like, what a church that is forgiving, that prays the fifth petition, what it looks like. And I just want to highlight a few things. So point three this evening, 70 times seven. As the church prays this petition, God is forming us in certain ways that to pray this prayer is to be formed by God, to be formed as a people of forgiveness. So asking really the question, what is the fruit of forgiveness that we ought to see in the church? The first one I want to point out is the fruit of confession. Confession, point A. James says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is in part, you know, this exhortation to confess our sins that we see through Scripture is in part why we as a church, every Lord's Day, we come confessing corporately our sins to God, that we as a people, we are a confessing people, that we recognize, as this you know, verse says, that we are sinners, that we have sins that need to be confessed. But interesting here, James says, on the one hand, you know, confess your sins, recognizing you are sinners, you need to confess. But he also says the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. That to be a confessing community recognizes both of those truths, that we are sinners who need to confess and repent of our sins, but we are also righteous, those who have been called righteous, and that we can come to God confessing our sins. That in fact we can, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can proclaim that forgiveness to others. We can be you know, bold in confessing our sins to one another, asking for forgiveness, and knowing that we will hear God's promise of forgiveness to us. This, you know, being a confessing community really protects against two traps that we often fall into. One is the trap of self-righteousness, that we are righteous, we don't deal with sin anymore, we are working towards perfection, and so to tell my sin to a brother or sister is really to admit failure. And on the other hand, to deal lightly with sin, we this, this trap of licentiousness, that sin really doesn't matter anymore because Jesus has taken care of it. But as we confess our sins, as we repent of our sins, Together, God is doing a work, is shaping us, is making us more and more like Christ. Point B, then, not only does it make us confess to one another or encourage confession, but point B, it encourages love for one another. Paul says in Ephesians, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This prayer, again, this petition reminds us of the reality of sin. And part of that reminder is the fact that we as Christians, we in this life will continue not only to sin, but to be sinned against. That our brothers and sisters in Christ will continue to fail us time and time again. And yet we also want to remember that these brothers and sisters in Christ that we are so quick to perhaps judge, so quick to be hostile towards, that these, as Paul says, these are those for whom Christ himself has paid. That Christ himself has forgiven them. And so we ought to also be quick to forgive one another. It changes our posture from one of being 
condemning towards our brothers and sisters, towards one of sympathy, that we know that we share in this common struggle with sin and we ought to be patient, bearing with one another's burdens. That we operate now not on the basis of judgment with one another, but truly as Christians on the basis of God's grace. Point C, one of the other ways this expresses itself, this uh, you know, seeking God's forgiveness, is in fact in holiness. In holiness, and I point you to 1 John 1, 5-10. through 10. The, the metaphor John uses in this passage is he, is he exhorts the people to walk in light. He says, your father is, you know, is in light. He is in, uh, the one who walks in light. And you, as his children, ought to walk in that light, this picture of holiness, of sinlessness. And yet, in order to do that, then he goes on to give us this exhortation to confess your sins to Christ, to ask for forgiveness. And the point being, confess your sins, not just so that you could, uh, you know, not, not in like a, a flippant way, but so that those sins can be forgiven and so that you might be restored into that holy fellowship. That the first step into the life of holiness is to ask for the forgiveness of sins, John says. And then lastly, our witness, point D, witness. That as we are a confessing people, a people who ask for forgiveness, that this is a witness to the world. In Luke, Jesus says, Jesus answered them, speaking of the Pharisees, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call the righteous, or not the, uh, to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. So often Christians are perceived as self-righteous, as those who are you know, distant or detached from the world because they view themselves as above the world. And yet we want to recognize as we confess our sins, we are saying that we are no different from the world in the sense that we are all sinners. The difference is not what we have done, is not our own merit, it's not our own achievement, but is the fact that we have been forgiven. That we offer that same message of forgiveness to a world that is in need. That the testimony of the church is always to proclaim that Jesus is a Savior who saves sinners. That should be the witness of the church. So point E, in conclusion, having been truly forgiven, we can extend this forgiveness to one another and to a needy world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the sure promise that you have and will continue to forgive the sins of your people. Lord, we ask that you would help us in this life more and more to die to sin and more and more to live unto godliness as you conform us into the image of your Son. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.